and welcome to the latest episode of Tez Podagogy Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Alice Jones from Goldsmith University in London, where she is a reader in psychology and director of the Unit for School and Family Studies. She's also the editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Educational Psychology. And we're going to be talking today about the psychology of social and emotional and mental health difficulties and the link that those have to behaviour in classrooms. Uh, First of all, welcome, Alice. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you for coming. Um, So I think a good place to start off would be what we are calling social, emotional and mental health difficulties as opposed to what could just be difficult behaviour of a day for a student. Okay, so I spend most of my time working with students who have a kind of a label of social, emotional, mental health difficulties. So most of my time is spent with um, SEMH special schools or pupil referral units, um, both primary and secondary, um, or units that that are attached to mainstream schools. And so what I'm interested in is how do those social, emotional and mental health um, aspects of a child influence what you see in the classroom and influence their behaviour. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from that into mainstream classrooms to make them sort of, I don't know, more more straightforward places perhaps for some children who might be struggling more than others. Okay, and where where would you, how would you define that? Like if you're a teacher, what should you be looking for for kids who might be struggling with those sorts of issues? I I think you know who they are. Teachers definitely know who these children are. Um, These are children who you need to bring back into line more often than you would other students. So maybe they are off task in the classroom, maybe they're sort of wandering or they're not getting on with what they should be doing, maybe they're calling out, maybe they're getting into scraps with other children or or having fallings out more often than other students. They're the children who are obviously finding the classroom more tricky to navigate on a day-to-day basis. Okay, and so to get into the, and this is a huge question, um, but the, the factors that are involved in, in the, that kind of behaviour and those uh, social, emotional and mental health difficulties, could you uh, <laughs> begin to break down what could be going on in, in the brains of those kids? Kind of, yeah. So there's a really nice phrase that I think works for students who are having difficulties in this area and it brings it into the classroom so the idea that these students are actively inefficient learners and what we have going on here is we kind of remove then the focus on behavior the behavior is a byproduct of the fact that they're finding the classroom tricky Mm -hmm. so in an everyday classroom what we are expecting children to do and what most children do beautifully without really thinking about it is multitask so they have to um, be able to listen sit still, write things down, um, be able to read things and listen at the same time, be able to tune out the fact that there are lots of children around them, tune out the fact that you know they've just come from playtime and they might be a bit excited, there might be something going on later in the day, um, they might be hungry. There's a multitude of things that they're needing to work with and manage. And most children do this without, we do it without thinking about it, right? For some children, that's a bit more tricky for lots of different reasons. And I think it's important that we try and think for individual children about what those reasons might look like. So for some children, sensory issues are a really real thing. There's about 15% of the general population who have no obvious or diagnosed 
you know, neurodevelopmental condition who have significant sensory issues. So that might be things around sound or um, clothing feeling a bit weird, so children who really prefer to take their shoes off. Um, it might be about light. So, you know, if, if you're in a room with strip lighting, sometimes overhead flickering light really, you know, can, can kind of interrupt your, your thinking. Um, for some of those children, it's about knowing where they are in space. So I, I with quite a number of children whose idea of proprioception is really quite poor. And what that means for them in the classroom is that sitting on a chair is surprisingly tricky. And these are kids who are they're a bit like liquid mercury. You're kind of working with them one minute and the next minute they sort of slid off their chair and they're not being naughty and they're not being purposefully disruptive. They've just sort of forgotten where they are in space. And that makes life really tricky. So if you're spending all your time focusing on just sitting and existing, how on earth do you do the work that's in front of you? It's really hard. So the, there are children who come with those kinds of difficulties. Um, there are children who find the emotion regulation aspect of a classroom quite tricky. So managing conflict, managing, um, you know, saying the right things or, or communicating in just the right way is, is a little bit tricky. Um, and those children will find themselves getting into more um, conflict. They'll find themselves, you know, having difficulties with friendships <coughs> and managing to, to, to break into kind of regular social conversation is, is going to be more tricky. They're also more likely to be the ones who disrupt a classroom because maybe they haven't quite got when the right time to, to interrupt or ask a question might be. Um, there are also children who have problems with inhibiting their behaviour. So knowing when to stop, you know, sort of getting excited about something and then being able to dial back. There are some who find that far more tricky. Mm. So there are, yeah, there are lots of ways in, I think, to thinking about what, what might be going on for an individual child. And we talked before about this idea of self-regulation mm -hmm. being a, an expectation in classrooms. For sure. But how that's just, as you were saying, that's incredibly difficult for some children to mm -hmm. do. Uh, and we touched on this idea of co-regulation. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. So I think if we can think about what's going on for a child who's finding the classroom a bit tricky, um, perhaps if we can identify what areas they're finding particularly troublesome, then we can put scaffolding in place to help them regulate their own behaviour. And there are lots of things that are quite, um, you know, sort of non-intrusive for a classroom that can be done for individual children with very little kind of burden or extra resource. So things like um, using a, a sort of very consistent low-level language with a child to remind them about, you know, if their behaviour is getting a bit high. Um, or giving the child a way of communicating that they need a way out of a situation. So if, if they're in a situation where everything's getting a little bit much. Um, so one school I worked with, the children came up with the idea of a stop button. Okay. And this is great because the teachers can use that word, the children can use the word and everyone knows what it means. And some children have a little paper representation of a stop button on their desk. And if they need to, you know, they, they kind of press it or they take it to the teacher and say, you know, this is a bit much, I need some time out. Um, and the teacher can say in a really sort of no judgmental way, you know, are you using your stop button as a nice way of saying, do you think it's time to calm down? Um, and if everyone uses that language and everyone's aware of it, then it's a neat way, I think, of helping a child learn 
about when their behaviour is appropriate and when it's breaching those boundaries a little bit. And how much are you seeing strategies like that being used in schools? That's a good question. Um, in alternative provision, I see that quite a lot. Um, teachers in alternative provision, I think, sometimes have the luxury of being a bit more creative about what they're doing. Their focus is on kind of ameliorating behavioural difficulties and, and kind of developing social and emotional skills. In mainstream classrooms, I think the pressures are different. Um, but I still see some really excellent creative practice that mainstream teachers are able to do for individual children. Um, and I, I think being able to think carefully about what works for their children and what works for their classroom mm. is, is the key way that, that these sorts of things work well. Just to go briefly on mm -hmm. a slightly negative vibe, what definitely isn't working in terms of behaviour management for kids with these kind of challenges? Okay, so what isn't working are heavy sanctions that come without clear idea of, of why they're in place. So <coughs> to kind of flip it over a little bit, there was a really nice review lately um, from the um, Inspectorate of Prisons, which feels like a slightly weird direction to yeah. come from. I'm, I'm aware of this. Um, the focus was on youth justice and kind of youth offending institutes. And the first line in their executive report says, positive relationships between staff and those in their care underpin all effective behaviour management systems. So what works well with relationships underpinning behaviour management systems is that consequences are communicated clearly. So communication um, lets a child know about why certain consequences are happening and that they're happening with an idea that you can learn from them in the future because we all make poor decisions sometimes. I do, you do, children definitely do, they're mm -hmm. developing humans. Um, and consequences are a natural thing that happens as a result of the choices we make about behaviour. Consequences don't need to be sanction-based. Okay. So one of the things that I'm interested in thinking about are how do you create an education system that isn't contingent on sanction? Mm. Because, you know what, we don't go around not committing crime because we're frightened about prison. I didn't spend most of my time being okay at school because I was frightened about detention mm. because I was because I wanted to avoid it. You just know where, where the boundaries are and you kind of if you're in a school system which creates a situation where you want to meet those boundaries where you where you want to meet the kind of potential that's been put out in front of you then that's a good place to be mm. you are going to make some mistakes sometimes and that's all right but those need to be presented in terms of okay there's a consequence for this and here's what it is also here's where how we're going to move on from it because the problem with kind of straightforward punishment and i've talked about this with lots of schools who've tried to remove their sanctions and one of the one of the ways that that um, is a really good way in for this thinking about well okay what what do you have currently and usually it's something like detention some mm. sort of loss of privilege freedom okay that's fine who goes who turns up for this is it the same kids every day it's always the same kids every day so what they're not learning a thing they're learning approximately nothing from doing this and all that actually they are learning something they're learning that this kind of reliance on punishment justifies their hostile behavior so what they're learning is that teachers are out to get them. Mm. 
whether that's true or not, and it's not true because teachers are not out to get kids, but this is, this is what they're internalising. <coughs> and if you, you've talked to kids, this is what they will tell you. Yeah. They don't feel respected. They don't feel like they've got anything to offer or that what they have to offer isn't wanted. Um, <coughs> and they don't take responsibility for their behaviour then because their behaviour is being um, <coughs> dealt with in this kind of non-discursive way. And if you're not needing to ever think about how you might improve your behaviour in the future, you don't need to take responsibility for it. You can sit in detention, wait it out and go home again. I guess the other thing is that if you're in detention that often, it just sort of becomes a part of your routine at that point. So it's not even like a thing. It does, it does. I've, I've been doing some work in mainstream secondary schools recently um, and they have a, a kind of out of classroom base that you're sent to if you're disruptive or you know you're, you're kind of not going well in a lesson in that space you don't do any lesson work it's it's a punishment space where you don't you know you're, you're just kind of hanging out there under the the eye of of a teacher they know they <laughs> some kids will tell you they spend quite a lot of time there they know it's a waste of their time they know it's a waste of the teacher's time and they're stuck in this kind of strange standoff about it mm. they'll still end up there because they don't know what the alternative is they don't know they haven't learned how to behave differently and it's presented to them as well this is your choice you've behaved like this in the classroom so you're out of the classroom that's okay because behavior is a choice mm. but it's not okay because we're not telling them what the alternative choice is and to try and get some children to work that out for themselves is a long time coming yeah. Um, and I think you're you're wasting your own time and everybody else's time if you're not trying to build that in to whatever happens next. Absolutely, that's so interesting. I do want to come back to that point, but just to jump back quickly mm -hmm. to a, a non-sanctions based, um, a non-punishment based sanction system. Yeah. yeah. What could that look like? Like I've never seen that in practice. So what it looks like. So I've I've worked with three schools that have done this really really successfully. Um, all three place good relationships at the basis of what they're doing. Mm. Um, all three make it very clear that expected behaviour and behaviour that goes beyond expectations is rewarded. And it's rewarded in tiny ways, really small ways. I'll give you an example in a minute. Um, when poor choices happen, the emphasis is always on de-escalation. Mm -hmm. So these schools really effectively use non-confrontational strategies. So what you never ever do is back a child into a corner because they don't know what to do and actually you set yourself up for failure. So you're always presenting a choice, you know, well you can carry on, you know, you <coughs> can see that things aren't going well here, you know, that language is unacceptable. You can carry on like this and I will ask you to go somewhere else. Or you know what, we can we can talk about this in a minute, you can sit down and then we'll think about it. And sometimes a child will opt to move out of a classroom for a minute. Sometimes they recognise themselves that they've got themselves into quite a bad place. And sometimes it's okay for them to sit down and wait for the discussion to happen about what's gone wrong, what needs to happen better in the future, what, what needs to happen in the immediate. Over this time, children develop trust in their teachers. 
and often these are children who don't have trust in very many adults. Right. Adults aren't necessarily proving themselves to be very trustworthy towards them. They will develop trust that they can make mistakes and these mistakes aren't catastrophic. If you've been excluded from two or three schools, you've got nothing left by the time you, you reach this place. Um, if it's okay for you to come in and make the odd mistake, then that's all right. But also someone's going to sit down with you and think about how we might do things differently in the future and how things are done here in this context. And we try and do things like this. And if we feel like this, then actually these are things we can do to get there. So these schools are often really quite quiet, peaceful places to go to because the expectations are clear. There are very high expectations, but the children are scaffolded to meet them mm. rather than set up for failure. Okay, and yeah, we, I know we talked before as well about this idea of actually building emotional recognition into the curriculum mm -hmm. as, a, as a thing that's studied and understood. Yep. How might a school begin to do that, especially you know, in light of the very stretched curriculum? Yes. I have seen recently two examples of primary schools who have chosen their curriculum to meet their students and they've thought about it really carefully and in both cases it's involved them choosing an entirely new curriculum and in both cases it's worked really well because it's embedded, they've managed to find a curriculum which meets their ethos and it works really really well. Um, now. I am not a teacher and I do not have a brilliant working knowledge of curriculum and I'm not going to pretend to be a teacher because that's not what I'm for. But I am in constant awe of senior leadership teams and teachers who can make the curriculum work in this way. Mm. That they can embed aspects of social emotional learning in most things that they do. That they can think about how to um, offer opportunities for developing working memory, for developing executive function skills, um, for developing a sense of cohesion in a classroom to get children to work together on tasks, um, to try and kind of develop social skills. The creativity that is possible is really, really brilliant. It was, it's, it's astounding. And you can also see that in the way that teachers respond to that. They kind of become you know sort of really really independent um you know, each classroom is the same but also slightly different um and, and it looks like everyone is kind of really enjoying what they're doing amazing do you have any examples of things that you've seen sort of building that social emotional education into classrooms mm -hmm. so there are tons of things um from work i've seen on walls recently um ideas around reading a book and then doing a piece of writing which focuses on how does the main character feel in these I mean these are small things schools are already doing this right this, there's nothing here is reinventing the wheel um about planning um what happens when so giving responsibility to children for planning so um the example that I've given a hundred times but it's still my favorite is um when a key stage two class were thinking we're learning about vikings and they were going to do a viking raid on a key stage one class <coughs> and they thought very carefully about it um so they made their viking hats um and they they learned about sort of what, what they were going to do but they thought about first of all they, they planned what were they going to go and get when they got into the classroom 
But also, if they went charging in there with their hats on, being quite scary, what's going to happen to the children? So they thought about, okay, well, the children might feel scared. Well, if they feel scared, how would we know? What will their faces look like? And if they do look like that, what are we going to do about it? Do we, do we want them to feel like this for the rest of the day? And so what happened in reality then was a very, very polite raid where the children knocked on the door in their Viking hats. Hello, we're here for your highlighter pens, because that was the, that's the prize, which is reasonable, it's a good prize. Um, went in, checked if the little ones looked a little bit scared, um, immediately tried to, to mitigate or preempt it even by just giving over their hats and going, why, why don't you have the hats? Um, and then going away again with their prize. And I, I'm not quite sure whether they got a true idea about what a Viking raid was like. <laughs> but... There was a really nice um, idea here about, you know, how, how do we plan to do something which might be a little bit risky, which might slightly upset someone. Um, what, what do we do about it and how do we plan for it? That's great. What a lovely image. <laughs> the, the polite Viking raid. And so for any teachers and leaders who are listening to this and thinking, like, OK, I need to start building this in, where is a good place for them to start? That's a good question. Where it's done really well is that everyone is on board and everyone uses the same language. So um, what what looks good, I think, is is the impression of a fairly flattened hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So of course the hierarchy still exists, and, and all the staff are aware of you know where the senior leadership team is and what what happens. But in terms of what the children think, they understand that everyone in the school has equal right to monitor behavior to 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 talk to them and that there's a consistency of language so sometimes just some really nice shortcuts for language are very helpful particularly for those who are struggling um so it's something you hear from the midday assistant to the head teacher to your classroom teacher if we're all using the same language then i think you give the um the impression very quickly that everybody has equal say so there's no you're not my teacher you can't tell me Mm. Um, the expectations are quite clear the emphasis needs to be I think on building solid relationships and I I did a piece of work really recently where I've I've interviewed teachers who are in special education about how they've done this Mm. and I asked them you know is this something that you think you could see work in mainstream and they all sort of looked a bit sort of well I don't know it's you know it's quite tricky isn't it when you've got such big classrooms and and you've you've got such a lot of focus on on you know academic achievement and things like this they thought well possibly but then also you're working with children whose needs are less Mm. you know enormous um and I I think it's entirely doable I think creating an environment of you know mutual respect and and um kind of modelling that in your in all of your interactions with students is frankly what most teachers are trying to do anyway. There's mm. there's nothing new there. But thinking about how that works across all the behaviour management strategies. So th- things like, I don't know, traffic light systems. The schools I work with don't like them. Um because they're they're not effective. Um, they, they tend to kind of either induce anxiety yeah. or put children in the mindset of, well, I'm already, you know, in red, forget it, I'm, yeah. I've lost, I'm not going to try anymore. 
Um, so to think really carefully about whether those systems are working for everybody. Because most kids think maybe they will sometimes, you know, make the choices which put them into, you know, one of the lesser categories. But never mind, you know, it's, it's not going to have an effect on, on the way that their behaviour is across the board. Um, whereas there are other kids for whom those strategies are really not helpful. Lovely. Thank you so much, Alice. It's really interesting, really, really positive. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.